I'm going to bring us the Bible reading tonight. It's first of all from Ephesians 2, 19 to 22, followed by Ephesians 4, verse 1 through to verse 16. So Ephesians 2, 19 to 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. <clears throat> I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. But as for he ascended, what is that if he did not also descend into the lower regions, that is, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave on the one hand some to be apostles, some on the other hand prophets, and some again evangelists, and some shepherds and teachers to complete the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the full knowledge of the Son of God into a complete man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, being buffeted by the sea and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, living out the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is supplied, as each single part does its work, makes the body grow by building itself up in love. And now as we hand over to Jeff for the sermon, I just want to um, pray for him. Lord Jesus, we thank you for Jeff. We thank you for what he has prepared, what you have laid on his heart. Give us eyes, ears, hearts and minds to hear what you have to say to us through him and bless him mightily lord in jesus name amen well thank you for your uh, prayers mari and uh, thank you for this opportunity <clears throat> to be able to uh, open this passage i've been thinking about this passage for nigh on 30 years it's uh, extremely important it's a basis of my ministry based what i do and how I understand uh, who I am as a pastor and what is the church and where it is in God's plan through this very passage. If ever there was a complete passage on 
why we're here and what a nice church like Q is doing in a place like this. This is the, the passage that will explain it. And uh, uh, I, I think it would be uh, really useful if you had your Bibles to keep them open um, as we work through it. This is um, really the blueprint that Paul has for the church, that Christ has for the church through Paul. It's, if anything, it's like the engineer's diagram for the construction of God's temple. And we uh, saw firstly in that passage that we first read that Paul had brought up this idea of uh, Christ being the cornerstone of a house and foundation stones and a structure, this idea of being built together uh, into a dwelling place by God's spirit has already occurred in chapter two, and he hasn't had a chance to flesh it out, but tonight's the night, and he fleshes out this passage, and he opens us and our understanding to where we fit. He's really trying to explain what the church is inside the grand scheme of things, inside God's story. That's the very nature of Christianity. It's not an ideology. It's not a philosophy. It's not a spirituality. It's a story primarily of God and what he's been doing in the cosmos. So with that in mind, let's leap straight in and look at the first Uh, Look at the sections. Uh, There's a diagram here which might help us understand where we're heading. And you can see that uh, really there is sense to this this passage. It may seem disjointed, but Paul is really making a pretty solid, cohesive point. He begins by looking at uh, the basis for family unity in verses 1 to 6. Then he seems to break off and he, he remembers a psalm that's pretty significant. Most Jews would have known this psalm, a Psalm 68. And one verse in the psalm, which uh, for Paul speaks not just of the, the, uh, the, the psalmist's experience, but the experience of Jesus Christ. And then we get to unpack two points. Two words get unpacked in that psalm. This, the word ascend or he ascended and the idea of the gifts or what God gave. And then he pulls it together to uh, unpack the supreme goal in verses, verse 13 of this chapter. And then he quickly touches on three results, which are automatic once we understand the goal. So that's where we're heading. And I hope that uh, is somewhat, uh, uh, it may have muddied the waters, I'm not sure, but uh, some people are eye gate people and others. Anyway, let's have a look at the first section, the basis for unity, verses one to six. Just reading, Paul says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, an interesting title. He's used that once before in the book. Um, urge you, it's the strongest word he could use. It's saying he's, this is imperative. To walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So that's the command that he's giving this church. That's. That's what he's laying upon them as a duty. And the duties of Christianity are to be a certain sort of community. Not like the communities of Rome, the brash, unashamed communities of the world of his day, but kind, humble, tender communities of love. And that's the the imperative that he lays upon them, the command. But Paul, as you notice in all of his letters, whenever he gives a command, it's really one part command and nine parts the gospel. 
And he follows that command by saying, this is the reason why I'm commanding you is because these things exist. These are the givens or the indicative mood uh, into which you understand that command. There is indicative mood now. There is one body and one spirit, just as you're called, the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who's over all and through all and in all. Uh, it's pretty obvious that Paul is trying to make a point here. And uh, uh, he is trying to say that this is the uniform experience of all people. If you might have noticed that it's actually, he's broken down these oneness things and these all things in the order of the Holy Trinity, but he's beginning with the work of the spirit, the experience end, rather than the intention end in the father or the, the actions of Christ in history. He's beginning with our current uh, person of the Godhead that we experience, through whom we experience. And uh, <clears throat> there are nine things there. Now, just to break off for a moment, if Paul was a sociologist and he lived in our day, then any sociologist or social psychologist would tell you, if they're worth their salt, that there's two tasks which every community must attend to or it just won't exist. It won't last the, the test of time. And the first task, you could say, is the integration task or there is an integration principle which undergirds every good community, lasting community. That is, every community must resolve the issue of what is it that joins you together and makes you coherent. And then there is the, in, the differentiation task, which is every community must decide, well, who has the responsibility for X, Y, and Z? Who gets more power to lead? How do we devolve that? That's the differentiation task, which can divide the community into different sorts of responsibilities. Those two tasks exist in any community. Now, here, obviously, Paul is attending to the issues to do with the integration task or the integration principle, as I'm calling it here. And what he's saying, basically, is that God has done all he could so that we could have this unity of the spirit. There are nine genetic features here that we all share when we log on tonight to this church service. And I defy anyone to find any other random log on in your life where you could be looking at people which you share nine essential character issues. And these are things that have been done to you, in this case, by God. These are things which we are, you notice these words, to maintain. That is, we don't create these things. We don't make a spirit in our image or a Christ to save us or a father to love us. These are things that are gifts of God, these onenesses, these alls. You notice by virtue of stressing seven times the word one and four times the word all, Paul is really trying to make a strong point that there are no elites when it comes to Christian experience. There aren't some people who just have Jesus and others who have the spirit or some who got through to the Father, the mystics amongst us. No, every Christian, all Christians, every church body has the whole of the Godhead. That's the gift of Christ that comes to us through the Spirit. Hard to get your head around that Holy Trinity, but that's the truth of it. 
That's the nature of the average Christian. And Paul thinks that should be enough to hold them together. And God thinks that should be enough to hold them together, to all have the same saviour, to all have the same father, to all have been blessed by the same spirit. And that's what Paul is saying. This is the integration principle. But no sooner has he dealt with that than he says, but, in verse 7, he makes a contrast here. And he's going to move now on to something which is a bit of a tension with that principle. And I don't think the Ephesians were having a lot of trouble with the integration principle. I think what they're having trouble with in this pastoral letter, and this is where he addresses it, is how to introduce the differentiation principle of devolving power to some, which is not the same power that all have or the same responsibility that all have. And he comes up with this little voice. That's the tension, holding these two things together. And like Aussies, I think the Ephesians had trouble with the tall poppy syndrome. And they don't quite know how to deal with leaders. And Paul says, but, and this is the truth, grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. According to the fact that we've all had a dispensing of Christ, grace was given. Now, this isn't just generic salvation grace. He's used this word frequently through the epistle, the epistle. and specifically, like in 3.2, he says, you understand the grace that was given to me in the administration of the gospel, or I had a particular assignment, you might like to say. The goodness of God, his grace was given in the form of a package. It was the assignment to be an apostle to the Gentiles. That's the grace that Paul had. And he's saying each of us actually has a particular assignment. Now, you know that. You would have studied spiritual gifts. You would have read Corinthians 1, 1 Corinthians 12. And that's, but Paul is not taking us down that route of trying to say every Christian has a gift tonight. Not in this passage. He now breaks off and he focuses on one of the key scriptures that Jews would have loved, the, the triumphal scriptures of the Psalms where David the king speaks about, well, I think David was speaking better than he knew. But Paul picks up on the fact that there's a striking parallel between David's experience and Jesus' experience. And he wants to expound this little verse in Psalm 68, verse 18. And he says, and I'm reading, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. You, you've seen epic theatre or you've seen, you know, movies of this era when the king returns to to his uh, capital city and to his throne and he ascends his throne and and all the captives that he's captured along the way are paraded and uh, you know it could be zoo animals and slaves and and the vanquished foe and then he distributes through his largesse to all the people which is a sign that he is the king that he's got stash to distribute You'd have to be suspicious of any victory where the king comes back and there's no loot. And he just says, oh, I won a victory, by the way. Now, the king demonstrates the victory by his generosity. You get the picture? And Paul picks up on that psalm <clears throat> from this. When he ascended on high, he, he led a host of captives. And, and then he picks on two words that are key to hear. And he says, let's check out the word ascended first. He says, but as for he ascended, now 
this is a little bit different than what the NIV says. The NIV and a couple of modern versions have added a couple of words which I think have lost the crucial thing Paul was saying. They've made assumptions here that aren't warranted. He says, as for he ascended, what is that? Well, what would it mean if he did not also descend to the lower parts, namely the earth, into our world again? He who descended is the one who ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. Now, a lot of commentators and translators have immediately thought, well, in the creed, in uh, common Christian theology, when we, think, when we think of the idea of descent, we're thinking of the incarnation. Model one. There are a couple of models here of this particular verse. We might have a diagram for it. I'm not sure. But if not, we'll, we'll carry on. Oh, yes, here's the diagram. First model. Uh, the sun, and all Paul would be saying here is that, are you aware that the one who ascended was the one who descended? Yeah. It's sort of common knowledge, isn't that, Paul, you'd say? That's a truism. Isn't that redundant? Aren't we aware that the one who descended ascended into heaven, therefore the one who ascended was the one who descended? I mean, is he just talking religious for a minute? You know, I, I think that's a problematic model. It assumes these in the solid lines that the incarnation is the descent, that the same person who descended is the same person who ascended, and the descent happens prior to the ascent, and then Christ ends up in the heavens that he might fulfill all things up there, that he might get heaven's house in order. Now, I don't think that's what Paul is saying at all. I think what he's saying is model two, this, this idea. The incarnation has already happened, the dotted line. But he is saying the issue we've got to look at is what value is the ascent? What is it? How can that be meaningful? He's saying, how can the ascension be meaningful if God did not descend again, subsequent to the ascension? In other words, when did Jesus descend again? What would be the answer? He descended, not materially. He is absent. But he did, in a way, through the triune relationship between the persons, he descended as the spirit, in the form of the spirit, distinct persons, same being. Now, I think the Ephesians needed to understand it. That needs emphasizing. That needs explaining. That's often misunderstood. And you see what Paul is saying, and, and that sort of language is true in other parts of the scripture. John the Baptist, for instance, was asked, you know, when, when he, he was speaking about Christ. And they said, why are you, you know, why are you going on about your cousin like that? You know, and John the Baptist said, I saw the spirit descend from heaven and remain on him. And Paul is saying that something similar has happened here. It's not the descent of the spirit onto the son, but onto the sons and daughters of God. That's what he's talking about here. So, in other words, let me put it like this. Paul is saying, <clears throat> what would it mean? What value would it have if Christ just came, died, ascended? And he then had won the victory 
and he had the legal rights to heaven and he's getting his house in order up there. What value would that have, particularly to us? We'd be suspicious of it if there wasn't some tangible evidence of that victory for the church. In other words, Paul wants us to understand that he who descended is the same God, the same being, if not, but not the same person that ascended. This church, like many, like ourselves, needs to appreciate just who the Holy Spirit is, lest we devalue this person that God sends. This person that God sends is none other than the God who rules. It's just that this is the third person of that Godhead who rules. And he comes not to fill heaven. He comes to be intimate and to be involved and to function as ruler here into the lower regions of the earth. That's the purpose of the sending of the spirit, that Christ may have a functional relationship with you and I and this realm. I mean, heaven's looking after itself. Everything's in order up there. But God has a special plan, and that's why he sent the Spirit. That is because he doesn't want to leave us as orphans until he comes again. He is absent, but and yet he is a special presence in our midst. We've got to therefore appreciate the Spirit, and we've got to appreciate this time in which we live. This isn't dead time until Jesus comes. This is reigning time where Jesus reigns by virtue of the Spirit. How does he reign? That's the next question. And that's what Paul deals with in the next two verses, verses 11 and 12, where it says, and he gave on one hand, and the Greek implies he didn't give all these to one person or everyone. He gave on the one hand some, not all. You see, he's been talking about one, 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 and all, all, all. But now he says there is a truth that's in tension with the integration principle. It's the differentiation principle we're dealing with here, folks, that God deals differently with some people for a very remarkable purpose. And he gave, on the one hand, some to be apostles, verse 11, some, on the other hand, to be prophets, some, again, evangelists, and some, shepherds and teachers. That's one sort of person. Now, I've uh, often uh, preached on this passion. I'll have people come up to me after the service and say, thank you for that, Pastor. Yeah, it's really great what you're saying about the apostles and the prophets, and they weren't listening at all. And they say things like, won't it be great when we start appointing apostles again and recognise the gift of prophecy? That then there will be really kicking goals. And, you know, that's what's missing in this church. We haven't identified the apostles. And usually people have identified themselves, which is a bit of a trouble. But that's not his point. Paul made his point about these back in chapter 2 when we read those verses or it was read to us by Mari that we are members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. You can see that that is an engineering metaphor there. It's about building. And in Paul's world, and all his readers would have understood this, the cornerstone was obviously the most important stone in a whole structure, especially a big structure like a temple. It bore all the weight of that temple. It fought, its forces were sent through the temple to hold it up. That's the cornerstone, the 
singular, irreplaceable Jesus and all his ministry. But leading up to that and away from it, there are two stones that in Paul's day were called foundation stones. And that's what he's playing on here, this same metaphor. He gave some to be apostles and others to be prophets. These are foundational gifts that lead up to Christ, that prepare the church to recognise Christ, to understand something of the, the person of Christ and his work. And once he comes, Christ appoints an equivalent foundation stone, but it's, it's those who now live with him and beyond him who bear witness to him in what he's done. The preparers and the witnesses, that's these foundation stones. And they are unrepeatable. They're unrepeatable because Christ's work is finished. He's not going to come and do another work. He is seated in heaven because he is the victor and he's seated on his throne ruling. You know, we look at this world and frequently look at it and it's, 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 it's a mess and there are a lot of threats on, the, on the, the surface. There's the Taliban in Afghanistan. You watch the news, you know that. You know, even the society is getting pretty aggro when it comes to Christian values and the place of of our freedom of speech. That can be pretty threatening, but I tell you, we mustn't let us think for a moment that this world is ruling itself, that it's random or in chaos. Christ rules this world, and how does he rule this world? Firstly, because he's given the gifts of the prophets and the apostles. When Christ is absent in person, he is present in spirit, in the form of the written scriptures, the prophets and the apostles, and they are foundational to this church and our church. But when they can't be around, what do you do? Well, the apostles were instructed by Christ to then appoint pastor, teachers and evangelists, the front line of those who introduce people to the kingdom, the missionaries, the evangelists, and the critical ministry of those who establish the church, pastors and teachers. So I think Paul is wanting these Ephesians to not only appreciate the day they're living in, not only appreciate the spirit who has been given, but appreciate because they're liable to devalue those humble servants called pastors, and teachers and missionaries. They are integral in the engineering diagram of God. They are integral in his manifesto. They are the way Jesus rules today. We might look pretty humble as a bunch of people, but not in God's book. We might be held in contempt by the world, but not in Christ's book, and he's the one who reigns. And you notice it reminds me so much of a, an illustration that I think of when I think of this is when years ago, uh, when I was a uni student, I can barely remember, but I remember my father uh, bought a new house and I shifted in with him and mum as the only kid left at home. And they bought a house on Blackburn Road, Blackburn Road overnight since they bought the house, got expanded from a two-lane road to a six-lane road overnight. And you can guess what happened. Trucks and all this commerce started charging past our door and you could you felt like you were living in a truck and after a, uh, a while my dad got fed up with this and decided to get a double brick wall built up uh, on two sides of the property to break the sound and I can remember uh, the workmen coming along it was thrilling they they dug a, a trench or two and they laid this great big foundation that was uh, significant and, you know looked sturdy for the job 
couple of days later, they let it set and they came back and they started laying the brickwork on that foundation. I went to uni that day and I remember coming home. I couldn't believe how quickly they'd laid that brickwork. It was pretty impressive. A big wall just sitting there on that foundation. But my dad came home and he uh, cast his good eye along that wall. And, and as he looked at it, he said, come out here and have a look at this. And sure enough, if you looked along the wall, it went like this. It went off the foundation and then back onto the foundation. And they kicked a bit of dirt over the foundation that they'd gone off. And my dad, I remember him having an argument with the bloke the next morning saying, you've got to take that wall down. It was pretty obvious that that wall had a significant flaw when it got off the foundation. And it would only take one rainstorm and that clay underneath that part of the wall that wasn't on the foundation would wash away or it would crack or expand and down would come the wall. And all the hard-earned cash would be being wasted that was put into building the thing. You see, that's what Paul is thinking about here that God has done everything in terms of the foundations. But the charge for pastors is a severe one and for evangelists that we only build on the foundation and that way generation by generation, row by row, history, history-making epoch by history-making epoch, the church will survive anything. It will stand the test of time and it will grow through it because the same Christ that he tells us to cherish lives with us by virtue of the spirit and he's gifting us and he's giving us humble pastors. What is their job? What is their role? Verse 12, here is a contentious text. And I think it's been mistranslated by Baptists, people like myself, because often it's, it's said that they're given to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So who does the ministry? The saints. That'll preach for the building up of the body of Christ. So everybody get busy and the minister becomes like a coach. But Paul is not making that point. It's a good point. It's not heretical, but that's not the point he's making. The point he's making here is that the role of the pastor is to perfect people, to complete people. It's actually a word that's only used once in the New Testament here. And in ancient Greek, it was used in a lot of places to where you fix something that, that isn't as the designer intended. It's in, used in medical imagery where you had a bone that was dislocated and the doctor would place it back in place so it wouldn't be in pain. And I think this is a beautiful metaphor for what pastors are to do that they are to perfect those who've been living under the reign of sin and Satan and the law for millennia. Imagine how long that bad company will corrupt good morals. There's an awful lot of work to be done in this world because there's an awful lot of hatred that's been poured into it from the evil one, distorting lives. And we are that group. And the pastors, firstly, are the group that deal with the damaged. That's their fundamental calling, to complete the saints, to perfect the saints, to make them what God intended them to be. For the work of ministry, in this narrow sense, everyone's got a ministry, that's right. But this is a differentiation principle. Some have this specific humble service for the building up of the body of Christ. 
Now, what's the goal of this building up of the body of Christ? That's the next verse, verse 13. What's God think is realistic in this world for you and me, for Q Baptist? What's he pitching for? That, you know, we just get a few bums on seats and we aim to keep the stats rolling in, pay the bills until Jesus comes. No, that's not it. God's ambition when he wins his victory, when he ascends to his throne, he said, I'm, I'm heading back there straight away by the virtue of the spirit, by the gifts of pastors and evangelists, and we're going to remake people and we're going to undo this dysfunctional world and all the impact of its fallenness until we all attain the unity of the faith. Hey, where's that language come from? Where was all, 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 where was unity mentioned? In the integration principle in verses 1 to 6. And now we return there. And you can see what Paul is saying. He's saying that the differentiation principle is not the end in itself. Pastors aren't celebrities. They're not the reason the church exists so that we might venerate them or adore them or hold them up in lights or fill stadiums and pay tickets to hear them. No, the goal of the pastors, the goal of the differentiation principle is to achieve the integration principle. God's model, what's in his mind, what's on his blueprint this very minute is that all of us watching this tonight may grow together in unity. He wants an even, one, even unity of faith. He wants an even front line of progress. He doesn't want elites. He wants us all, and that, I think, should appeal to Australians, to grow into how much? A fleeting knowledge of Jesus Christ? No, he wants us to grow into a full knowledge of the Son of God. I can't believe that. But God wants me to know Jesus like he knows Jesus. And I know we're not going to get there this side of eternity. One day we will see him as he sees us now. But that's still the goal. That's what he's working at. Every breath you take, he is working to transform you into the likeness of his son. He wants a family just like Jesus. That's his idea of completion. That's the word again. He wants the perfect man, the perfect humanity, you might say, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. If you didn't get it the first time, he said it three times in three different ways. What God wants for you is to know Jesus and to be like Jesus, and he will not stop working at that goal until he comes again, until you meet him face to you may think to yourself tonight, I'm not much chop. And boy, I know sometimes I've let the team down. I wouldn't be putting that sort of work into me. Thank God Jesus thinks differently. That's not the plan. He never gives up. He never gives up. He's working on your case this very minute. If you accept that and you accept your part in that and you accept this blueprint, 
then there are going to be three automatic repercussions that will happen automatically. First 14, 15, 16. Under good advice from my wife, I just bounced through these very briefly. <laughs> Verse 14. So we'll no longer be children buffeted by the sea, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning. There are some nasty people out in church lane, folks. By craftiness in deceitful schemes. Not everything you read, not everything you hear in a stadium has the imprimatur of the gospel about it. It's a terribly violent metaphor, isn't it? Throwing children into the surf. But that's how Paul sees it. That's how Christ sees it when Christians go off the track. And I could tell you many stories of people who started well and then they started playing near the edge of the foundation. And they didn't last once they got in the dirt. This is the first principle, the first result, stability, confessional stability. You know, come what may, a, a solid Christian who knows Jesus Christ doesn't vary. They're rock solid to the end. They don't, don't become trendy. They stand still. Second one, he says, rather living out the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him. There it is again. A balanced growth, not just headspace, not just, you know, attractive in my personality, but in every way into him who is the head is Christ. It's as we do this one thing, as we now the word is literally truthing in love, as we do the truth by love. That's his point. Isn't it astonishing that each of us is a preacher? Each of us has a sermon. That is, as we love people the way Christ loves them, not on the basis of their talents or their merits, but simply because they're loved. We speak the gospel. We're truthing in love. That's the authenticity principle. That is a spin-off that will happen. We become an authentic community that is so distinctive that people come into our midst at Q Baptist Church, they'll say, I haven't had a taste of a foretaste of the culture of heaven. And I'll never be the same again. That's what Christ is pitching for. And then the last one, he says, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is supplied. It's a, in the Greek, it's a beautiful poetry. Bounces along. As every single part does its work, makes the body grow by, by building itself up in love. It builds itself up in love. And this is the last result, automatic growth. Stability, authenticity, and automation. That's how God has designed the body. And, you know, we have one little part to play. You see that condition in that sense? Only one condition. In the whole of this wonderful passage that we've looked at, there's one thing we need to do as each of us plays our part. We don't sit back like Aussies and spectate the church. We don't become consumers of the goods of church. We become actors, active agents. You know, what Jesus wants to hear from us tonight is simply that we trust the plan because this plan is dynamite. This plan changes the world. This plan has set up civilizations. We stand on the shoulders of people who trusted the plan. 
And Jesus says to us tonight, again, do you trust the plan? Because it's the only one I've got and it's the best one you're going to get until I come to reign in person. There's only one way to respond to this tonight. And that's regardless of your history or your self-estimation is to step out in faith and to say to the Lord Jesus, in this grand story you're writing, give me a bit part in your script. That's all I want. You do that and your life will be changed materially, functionally, visibly in this world for as long as it will live. Write me in, Lord. Give me a part in this script. And he will, if you trust the one who made the plan. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that in the silence of this moment, we, as the scriptures say, live in two planes. We live in the plane of our lounge rooms here on the lower parts of the earth. But we live through the spirit in the reigning kingdom of Jesus Christ, the one who already has set the heavens in order. And Lord God, we just pray that you will help us to take the spirit very seriously, that you will help to take the gifts of pastors as signs of the generosity of a risen, reigning Lord. But, Lord, finally, we pray that you'd help us to appreciate this time in which you have given us and to take ourselves seriously as agents of the one who will come again. Help us to understand our true identity as you understand us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.